So Iqbal is a 46-year-old Muslim man in Pakistan, and he prays five times every day and fasts one day a month every year in the hopes that by doing good works, he'll get into heaven. Jyoti is a 26-year-old Hindu mother of five in India, and every day she burns incense in front of the idol of Vishnu in her home in the hopes that in her next incarnation she will be born in a higher caste. Boonsong is a teenager in Cambodia, and every day she goes into the temple and offers rice to her ancestors in the hopes that they will not harm her but will bless her. And then there's Gustav, a 73-year-old retiree in Sweden who has never believed in God or the afterlife at all. And then there's you, with whatever you walked in this morning or are watching online, believing. And the question is this, who is right? Jesus in our text today makes a staggering claim. One so sweeping, so presumptuous, so seemingly arrogant, that when we really understand what he has said, we as modern people have our breath taken away. And we wonder, did he just say that? But he did. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask this morning that, as the church in Thessalonica did, who had heard the word of God through Paul, but received it not as the word of man, but the word of God, which is powerful to change them. We want you to do the same in us today. Fill up what is lacking in our faith through your word, by your spirit, to the honor of your son, we pray in his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. We're really going to be looking at just primarily one verse today, verse 6. But we want to just set the context quickly. Now, Luke did a good job for us last week setting up the context of John 14. Jesus had just had the last supper with his disciples on his way to death. At the end of verse, chapter 13, he says, I'm not going to be with you guys much longer. And then Peter says in verse 36, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, but you'll follow afterwards. He begins chapter 14, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, because the place where I'm going, he says in verse 2, is my Father's house. The place is what we call heaven. It's where God lives. And then he says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that these are real people here, and Thomas is now as confused as Peter was and as you and I might be if Jesus had really not answered our question. And he says, Lord, um, we actually don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answers him in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to look this morning at four facets of that declaration. First, the declaration itself, then the substantiation, then the implication, and then the application. So first, the declaration itself. Now, you need to see this in the original Greek, not because you can maybe read Greek, but because there's a definite article that you need to see in front of these words. This is verse 6 of John 14. I am, and then it says, the way and the truth and the life. Not a way, a truth, a life. The way. No one comes to the Father if not by me. First, Jesus is the way. What is a way? It is a route, it's a path, it's a, it's a road to get somewhere. There's always a destination in mind. 
Now, a couple months ago, Marty and I were vacationing in Cooper's Rock State Park in West Virginia, and we had seen and read about this area in the park that had a particularly good view of the Cheat River. We wanted to get up to Raven's Rock, and so I got out my All Trails app and kind of committed the map to memory, and we drove to the trailhead, jumped out of the car, headed down the trail, happy as clams, and about a quarter mile down, the trail began to thin out. And then it passed a, a wider trail, but it kept going, and so I kept going. And as it got thinner and steeper, you know, I'm thinking, I know this is the trail because I've got the map in my mind. And I'm a guy. We never turn back. Marty is hanging back and finally thought, you know, there's just no way this can be the, the right trail. So, yeah, we backtracked, went back to where we'd parked the car, got to the trailhead, and then I am just absolutely sure that this sign was not there when we had first passed, but here's what we saw. <laughs> you see, there was a way to Raven Rock, but there was only one way there. McCollum Trail that we were on was a bridge to nowhere. It was simply a connecting trail that didn't go anywhere, and we had just missed the sign. And we didn't even do that on purpose to get a sermon illustration. But my friends, this morning, John 14, 6 is a sign for you and me today that there is one way to life, and his name is Jesus. How is he the way? Well, this is really the message of the whole Bible. Maybe best summarized for us in these verses from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. You see, in the temple and in the tabernacle before it, there was a heavy curtain that separated the presence of God from sinful human beings, lest we force our way in and be destroyed in God's presence. But when Jesus died on the cross that very afternoon, that curtain was torn in two, and a way was opened for sinful human beings to enter the presence of God and enjoy fellowship with him like Luke talked about last week. Because, you see, Jesus offered his blood as a payment for the debt that we owe for our sins. Now sinful human beings can go into the presence of God through the way that Jesus has opened. Secondly, he is the truth. It's a word that means that which is correct, that which is accurate, that which corresponds to reality. Now when it comes to math, we don't have any debate about what is true. So here I'm going to need help from, we don't have many kids today, but... Uh, what does four plus four equal? I know that's too easy for you, Jojo, Gracie. What's four plus four? Eight. Eight. Yeah, nobody disagrees with that at all. Now, when it comes to science, we have a little bit more debate about what is true. Dare I even mention the words COVID-19 or masks? You see, but eventually we sort it out, we figure out how this material world works, and we call that science, repeatable, provable, demonstrable events, and those are the things that we accept as true. But when it comes to things we can't see, like God or heaven, then ideas soon begin to scatter all over the place. And the question is, how do we know what is true? When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And then Pilate asked this timeless question. He said, what is truth? It's a very important question because truth, my friends, has a way of being stubborn 
as these lemmings will soon find out. Gravity's not going to tell me how to live my life. See, we need to know what reality is. And Jesus' answer to that question is not, here is the truth, you need to believe it, but he says, I am the truth myself. And what he's claiming, I think, is that he is God himself, the one through whom this whole world was created. And so he alone has the understanding of how it works because he made it. And every single thing that God says is trustworthy because he cannot lie. Now the same, of course, can't be said of human thought, can it? Either mine or yours. Because we're limited, we're fallible, we're biased. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. You see, human beings, we can think lots of different things, but we can't depend on them because we're humans. But what can we depend on? We can depend on Christ. Why? Because in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's why we can trust him. He is God himself. Thirdly, he is the life. Life is that which gives energy. It activates. It animates. And God is the only one who has life in himself. We just have borrowed it from him. And Jesus, as God, can give life to whomever he wishes. He had actually just demonstrated this back in chapter 11, when he spoke to Lazarus, who'd been dead four days in the tomb, and said, Lazarus, come out, and he was given life again. And Jesus there claimed, I am the resurrection and the life, which he is. But more than that, he gives a different quality of life to living people. He said in John 10, 10, I am come that they might have life, that living people actually need something in addition to that, and I've come to give that life to them and more abundantly. See, you and I think that life is in other things. We think that if we just have this or do that, we will be happy and fulfilled. But God warned and rebuked his people in Jeremiah 2, 13. He said, I have this against my people. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My friends, the things that you and I think give life may for a moment do that, but those cisterns, every one of them is cracked and broken, and the water runs out, and eventually it drains dry and we're left with no life at all. And if you're not there yet, you will be someday, I guarantee it, without Jesus. What we need is a fountain of life. We need a source of water inside of us that gives us life everlasting, and that's what Jesus has promised to give us. Now, to make sure we get the point, at the end of verse 6, Jesus basically repeats the same thing. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home and we had devotions regularly and as part of that, we memorized scripture. One of the verses we memorized is John 14, 6. You need to have it memorized. Well, one night, there were three of us kids and we just got giddy. We got kind of silly. And uh, the way this verse ends in the King James is, but by me. And that just tickled us. And so we started saying, but by me, but by me, but by me, but by me. And we just started laughing and I'm sure my dad thought we were just a bunch of pagan little children. Who knows going where? But it's stuck in my mind and in my sister's mind as well. There's no way to God but by Jesus. See, the truth stands between the way and the life because the truth is the way to get to life. 
And Jesus is all three. Second substantiation. That is an astounding claim to make. To say that you have the only way. I mean, other people claim other things. How do you know that you're right and they're wrong? It's not very loving or inclusive or politically correct. Ronald Engelhardt in an article in in Foreign Affairs argues that the religion around the world is declining because we're finally waking up to the fact that religions just developed in a certain cultural milieu, a historical context, and they were valid in that time for those people, but they're not valid across time and for different people. And when we insist that they are, we begin to fight among ourselves. And he says that's the reason for disputes and violent wars between Christians themselves and between Christians and Muslims. And he's got a point because that has happened. And you may resonate with some of that. How how can you say that something that grew out of the Middle East is now relevant for everybody all around the world? So what makes Jesus' claim right and every other one wrong? What gives him that authority? Well, it's interesting in our text that Jesus makes no attempt to substantiate this claim. And I think the reason is that his disciples had lived with him for three years already. They had seen him perform miracles such as no one had ever done before and demonstrated his power over nature in every conceivable way. And they had come to this conclusion that this man is God come in the flesh. And my friends, God does not need to substantiate anything. He is God. He made it all. He alone knows how it runs. Well, how do we know that? It's all here in the Bible. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe that Jesus is God and that he is the only one who can give salvation. But some of you are skeptics this morning, and let me commend you. A healthy dose of skepticism is a good thing. And here's what you're telling me. You're saying, I need something more than that because that's just circular reasoning. All you've done is proven the Bible by the Bible. I mean, Muslims have the Quran, Hindus have their Vedas, Sikhs have the Guru Granth Sahib, and secular people accept no divine authority at all. How do you know that Jesus was right? Well, my friends, the reason we know is that there was an event that happened in history that was witnessed by 500 people that is as substantiated as any historical event of that era. And that event breaks into this circle of circular reasoning and it grounds it in history, in objective fact, in truth. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, explained, not proven, proven by the witnesses, but explained by Paul in Romans chapter 1. He said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. My friends, it does take an element of faith to believe. That's what belief is. But it's not belief without basis. And the basis for our faith in Jesus is not just a book, but it's something that happened in history. When Jesus did something that no one else has ever done, he rose from the dead. And he demonstrated and substantiated beyond all doubt that he was who he claimed to be, God himself. And therefore, that all of his claims are true, including the one we've just studied this morning. Wow. The implication. Are you hanging with me so far? I know this is a lot of material. We're going fast. The full manuscript is available online. So feel free to use that. I'm sure you'll have some things to talk about in your small groups this week. 
But do you really believe 14.6 of John? Have you ever struggled with the implications? Because let me suggest that if you've never struggled with this verse, you haven't thought it through deeply enough, and we need to do that this morning. The first implication I see is that any other way to God is a lie. Kids, what is something that's not the truth? Do you guys know? If it's not the truth, it's, it's false. Can we just say that? It's a lie if it's not the truth. Our kids understand that. We get a little more sophisticated. We try to explain things away. Any other way to life than the way Jesus said is not a way to life, but it's a way to death. Jesus said in John 10, 1, anyone who enters the sheepfold by any other way is a thief and a robber. There is one door to get in, and he said, I am the door. Anybody telling you anything else is just trying to get something from you or deceive you. Any other way to God is a lie. Secondly, any other way to Jesus than through personal faith in him is a fabrication. If Jesus is the only way of salvation, how do we get it from him? I mean, does he just hand it out to everybody in the whole world as a free gift? Well, he could have done that, but that's not what he decided to do. And here again, we must push you back to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an amazing free offer for everybody, but something needs to happen in order to be saved. And he says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? There must be personal faith in Jesus and who he is and what he did in order to receive his gift of life. There is no other mechanism in all of Scripture to get the benefits of Jesus' death credited to your account. You say, well, how about Psalm 19? Don't the heavens declare the glory of God? Absolutely, they do. Or if you're a real student of Scripture, Romans 1, doesn't everybody know the eternal power and the divine nature of God through creation? Absolutely, they can. But here's what they don't know apart from the Word of God, and that is the salvation of God through His Son. The only way you can get that salvation is to hear the Word of God preached to you. Charles Spurgeon understood this well. And here's what he said about this teaching in John 14, 6. I want you to listen carefully to this beautiful 19th century English that just is so clear and defining for us. He said, can you see how our text shuts out of all acceptance with God any who does not receive Christ to be the Son of God, the mediator? Men sometimes say all are right, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whatever they may be, all are right. Let it be understood in no uncertain terms that the religion of Christ gives no heed to such a fancy. It claims for itself alone the solitary throne in the kingdom of religious truth, Spurgeon goes on to say. And then he says, I can find not one single sentence in this book of God which would lead me to believe that there is a way to God for the Muslim or the Jew or for anybody who will not come to him through Christ. The religion of Christ is exclusive in this. It says that no other foundation can one lay that has been laid Jesus Christ. 
And then he says, we can have no hope for those who receive not Christ. We pity them, we love them, we pray for them. But listen to this, we dare not deceive them. No, he says, we will be as tolerant as Jesus was. But he himself said, he that believeth not must be damned. My friends, it wasn't only Spurgeon who understood this from the Bible. The early apostles did too. In the very first century, they went about boldly preaching in Jerusalem the death and resurrection of Jesus. When they were called in and imprisoned and, and beaten up, they said, no, we, we're going to have to continue to preach this message. Why? Peter says in Acts 4.12, because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The third implication is any other hope for salvation is a deception. And here I'll ask the hardest question of all, what happens to someone who never hears about Jesus? Think of that woman perhaps in the jungles of Irian Jaya, illiterate, no TV, no internet. She lives life as well as she can. She dies, what's going to happen to her if she's never heard about Jesus? And here we come to the crux of the issue and the root of the motivation for global missions. What happens to that woman? The Bible says it all depends. On what, you say? On if she ever sinned. See, God is not unjust. He's never going to punish an innocent person. But the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if we've sinned against God, we have to be punished because we've sinned against an eternal God. And the only way out of that is to hear the message of salvation. This grates against us, doesn't it? It violates our sense of justice. It's hard to say. We cry not fair. You might be careful before you cry that because I've already said that it's not unjust, is it? They're suffering for their sins. But if it's unfair, whose fault is it? God's or ours who have been told to go and tell every creature on earth about Jesus. Finally, the application. At this point, you may be going, whoa. I'm not sure about all this. That's pretty extreme. It just rubs me the wrong way. I, how, do you, how do you claim you have a corner on the truth and that if I don't believe like you, I'm going to go to hell? That's, that feels old school. It's, it's intolerant. It's bigoted. A Pew survey in 2008 said most Americans, including 57% of evangelical Protestants, agree with this statement, many religions can lead to eternal life. If you believe that this morning, you're not alone, but you're also not right. Because there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. Some of you may be a little angry with me this morning, and if you need to shoot the messenger, go ahead. But let me suggest that your quarrel is not with me, it's with Jesus. And if your thinking and Jesus' thinking don't agree, who needs to change this morning? You see, the problem is that our brains have been so addled by the incessant noise of our postmodern culture, blaring its message 24-7 that there is no universal truth. In fact, to claim that there is is arrogant and judgmental and despicable. 
And because we don't want to be despised, we go along with the lies. My friends, this morning, let the word of God blow away the mists from your mind so that you can see Jesus for who he is, the only way to God. You see, he's there like a majestic Mount Everest, whether you ever see him or believe him or not. So how do we respond to this message? I think there are at least three groups of people here this morning, and I'll address you each just briefly. First group are people either here or watching online, who have never received Jesus. There's one very clear and simple application for you today, and that is receive this gift. You see, John 14, 6 is not a, an exclusive little box. It's not a straitjacket that we have to fight against. It is an open invitation for all to come and receive the gift of eternal life. Why would you not want to take that from Jesus? A Hindu once asked E. Stanley Jones, a missionary in India, what Christianity had to offer that Hinduism didn't, and he answered that in two words, Jesus Christ. What makes Jesus unique? Tim Keller tells us, he says, every other religion has a prophet who's come to tell you how to find God. Jesus is God who has come to find you. And that's what Jesus is doing today. He is searching for you to come and to believe in him. Lee Strobel told an illustration, used an illustration of two country clubs. There's one up on this hill, beautiful, desirable to get into, but it has a long list of requirements. You have to pay this much money and get these recommendations and wear these clothes and drive this kind of a car and then you can get in. Over here is another even more beautiful country club and there's just one person standing outside. And as you walk up to the door of that country club, that person has a card with your name on it and it says membership paid in full and all you have to do is take that card and hand it at the door and you get to go in and enjoy all the benefits of that club. Let me ask you, friends, which club is more exclusive? Jesus' club, the kingdom of God, is open for everybody to come if you will just turn from your sins and believe in him, and I would urge you to do that today. Second, there may be a group here who need to believe again. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not saying you need to to accept Christ again as your savior, but you've been battered and, and, and our culture has worn on you, things you've read and studied and talked about, and you begin to waver in your faith in the exclusivity of Christ. And I realize this is a hard saying of Jesus. But you know what? He never went away from his hard sayings to pander to the crowds. You need to read the end of John 6 sometimes. Sometime. He, he said, I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven to give life to the world. And it said that many of his disciples in verse 60 were offended at that. Just like maybe you are today at what you've heard. Well, Jesus didn't back down at all. In fact, he went on to say, if you think that's something that I'm the bread of life come down from, wait till you see me going up to glory to my father's house then that'll really be something to get offended about. And the text says in verse 66 that many turned back and from that day on no longer walked with him. Jesus then turned to the 12, his closest friends, and he said, guys, is this the end of the road for you as well? Are you jumping off the train here? Because I'm not backing down with who I am. And you remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, we have nowhere else to turn because you alone have the words of eternal life. Our mission as a church is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. 
But my friends, Jesus is not Mr. Potato Head that you can design any way that you please. Jesus is not the burrito at Qdoba's burrito bar that you can put in the things you like and leave out the things you don't. No, to mix our culinary metaphors, Jesus is the whole enchilada. <laughs> and if you take him at all, you have to take him all. This is the real Jesus. And if you can't believe that, maybe it's time you quit fooling yourself. You cannot follow a Jesus of your own making. He doesn't force anyone, but he does warn you that if you stumble over this stone, it will one day come back to crush you. And I would encourage you not to stumble today. When will it crush you? On that day when Jesus comes back and when, as Scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess exactly what we've read in 14.6, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have the choice to do that willingly now or by force when Jesus comes back and then pay for your sins in all of eternity. And then the third group, some need to believe this morning, some need to believe again or have your belief reinforced. But the third group is the group that believes this already. And what you need to do, and here we have a minute left and we're now just talking about missions, okay? Missions is built on theology. That's what I want you to understand today. The third group is a group that I would say are those that need to help others believe. You see, we know that he is the Savior. Not just the Savior, he's our Savior. We have come to taste his life and we know that it's good. In fact, we delight in his exclusivity, not because it makes us better than anyone else, but because it makes him greater. You see, his greatest glory is in this, that he is the only one who can give salvation, and we delight in that. Remember that tribal lady in Erie and Jaya who never heard about Jesus her whole life? How many people like that do you suppose are in the world today? You might think a few thousand, maybe a few million, and so it doesn't really bother you. You just kind of get on with your life. My friends, you could hardly be farther from the truth. There are today three billion people, one-third of the world's population, in that category. They are people that are living their lives, doing the best they can with whatever system they've been taught, and they have never once heard about Jesus. And they won't unless something changes. So my question for you as we close is, do you care about that? Do you care that people are slipping into a Christless eternity, justly suffering for their sins, but never having had the opportunity that you had to hear and to believe and be saved? Paul said he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because the Jews had rejected Jesus. He knew where they were going. Do you care about these folks? Here's where they live in the world. I show this map every reach because this needs to be, I think, burned in our minds. And my question for you who believe and know that Jesus is the only way of salvation is simply this. What are you doing to get his name proclaimed in the red parts of the world? That's where Jesus is not known, primarily. You can go there yourself and we'd love to work with you to send you if God is calling you. But the vast majority of you are going to be senders. And let me just ask you this question. What are you doing 
What impact is your family, your life, having on people in the red parts of the world? If there's nothing, then you need to start doing something today. If you're doing something, do something more. But here's the application, my friends. Something needs to change. If you just go on living your life like you've been living the last few years, nothing is going to change. There were 1.5 billion unreached people when I was in college. There are 3 billion today. The number is growing. So find one of these missionaries or one of our partnerships and plug in and, and, and give your energy. Pull on that oar and row and begin to do what you can from where you are to bring Christ to the people that have never heard. Don't know exactly what that's going to mean for you. And that's why I want to stop and give you a moment to pray about that, and then we're going to close. If you have not received Christ, we'd love to talk to you about that, and there will be some elders, the guest reception area outside. would love to speak with you about receiving Jesus today. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, I now believe John 14, 6, and I exult in it because that is your greatest glory. But then finally, you need to turn that on yourself and say, what do I need to do differently with the things God has given me, the time, the gifts, the resources, so that everyone on earth might have a chance to hear this wonderful news before they die. Father, speak to us by your spirit. I, I don't know what needs to change. Maybe nothing for some folks, but I think something for a lot of folks. Would you give us your heart, Lord Jesus, that wept over Jerusalem, that it might weep over this great number of people, three billion people dying without Jesus. And would you take us and use us in any way you see fit to bring this amazing message to them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask this for their eternal good and for your greater glory. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.